Welcome to Many Talks Podcast, talking all business, entrepreneurship, property development, finance, and investment. So, good afternoon. It's Reese Many here, the host of Many Talks. Um, got a fantastic guest with me today. I mean, this is season three um, from our listeners. We haven't had many podcasts in the last few months. We're coming back now. We've started to interview serial entrepreneurs from people that have listened before, business professionals, um, professional footballers. Um, so today we've got a, a fantastic guest, not only fantastic in business, um, but also uh, a pedigree of a professional as well, professional cricketer, um, Jeremy Snape. Thanks for coming on. Great series. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for giving us time. I mean, Going through your bio and a conversation that we had just before we started, obviously you started off um, in, in the cricket sector yourself um, and you moved through to, to be an actual professional cricket player. Um, how, how did that stem? I know that you've got a great business um, profile that we're going to speak about as well um, and, and some really exciting stuff for our listeners. And I've got some great questions for yourself. But... You know, to, to obviously, did, did you know that that was your passion? Was you passionate about becoming a professional cricket star at the time? Or yeah. how did it come about? It's a really interesting one. I think I was a bit of a hyperactive kid and uh, I was breaking things regularly in the house, you know, full of energy. And my dad saw, I think he was decorating one weekend and was got all the paint out. And he saw in the newspaper that there was a trial at a local or a sports, you know, cricket camp at a local sports centre. So they packed me off in my whites with a packed lunch and yep. uh, I was away for the day. So I couldn't knock any of his paint over and I got asked to stay behind. And it turned out it was the under 11s trial for my county, which was Staffordshire. So the, the sort of guy running it asked me to stay back and I got selected for this team, got into the under 11s, got into the under 13s, captained England at 15, signed pro at 16. And it was this weird sort of, conveyor belt I guess you get yeah. older and you get moved into the next team and I loved competing I loved trying to master the skills cricket's quite technical so yeah. uh, you know you have to be quite dedicated to it but I was lucky you know I, I worked really hard we got a cricket club near us so in the summer holidays I was there every day and just honing those skills and obviously somebody saw something at 15 16 and I carried on with my education uh, but I started pro at 16. So, yeah, the start of a, an amazing adventure. Was was you competitive from a young age, would you say, Jeremy? Yeah, I think so. I've got an older brother uh, who's three years older. So that helps, I think. Um, so that's perhaps where the, the the sort of competitive drive was. You know, he pinned me down a few times when I was younger. And then when, by the time I got to 13 or 14, I could bowl faster than him. So, um, you know, that's probably a good little uh, environment to grow up in. But, yeah, very competitive and Probably not the most naturally gifted player. I think anyone that follows cricket would uh, be nodding as I say that, but definitely tenacious, definitely innovative and, you know, trying to understand how to think people out on the opposition and being part of a 2020 team and one yeah. day team that won lots of trophies. You've got to be able to adapt pretty quickly, which linked nicely into the business career. Yeah. And and was it when you retired that you, you went into the business career and it sort of just carried on? Well, it's a good question. I, I was always fascinated about team culture and psychology. And I guess when you're playing professionally, you get a chance to test yourself against the world's best. Yeah. I got picked for England, got man of the match on my debut, felt pretty confident on that day, actually. Then got picked for the tour of India and there were 120,000 people in the stadium on the first match. 
And uh, although I bowled quite well against Sachin Tendulkar, I went out to bat and England were desperate to win the game. The pressure was building up and they needed a hero to step up and win the game for England. But instead, I ran out Freddie Flintoff, the only person that could have won the game for England and then played the worst shot of my life. So I think I realised on that night that that it's your mindset, actually, that's the key. I'd, I'd got a good strategy. I'd got a good technique, but yeah. my head melted under pressure. So that's when I started getting really fascinated about psychology. I did a master's degree while I was still playing yeah. in sports psychology. And then by the time I'd finished that master's degree, I was able to actually use some of it in some of the big finals that we played in and win a few 2020 matches. But then I made the transition to start coaching. So Shane Warne's team in the IPL, I coached South Africa for a while, worked with England rugby and the sports psychology side with Eddie Jones when they won 18 games in a row. Yep. And also look after the leadership development for some of the Premier League football managers as well through the LMA, which looks after all their personal and professional yeah, so you've done some stuff with Crystal Palace as well, which we, we can talk about um, uh, as we go on. I mean, so when, when you got into what, what do you think that helped you doing your Masters when you was playing? <clears throat> oh, without a doubt. Um, yeah. I wish I'd known. You know, the, to me, this was an area of performance that everyone said you might. I mean, I'm sure you think with your entrepreneurial career, your mindset's so important. But who who coaches mindset? You know, we all talk about learning financial skills or learning selling skills, but your mindset is fundamental to that. And cricket's no different. So, yeah, I, I always thought that, yes, the way you hold the bat and yes, the strategy you've got to get somebody out is important. But if I don't believe I can execute that in a massive game, then I'm never going to be able to do it. So I was lucky that the master's degree was... I'd lived 20 years as a pro, you know, I'd, I'd sort of made all the mistakes and banged my head plenty of times. But then yeah. when I saw it in a lecture, I thought, oh, God, I'm, that was the mistake I made. And they all started slotting into these boxes, whether it was a team issue or a leadership issue or a mindset issue. So, yeah, having the chance to play and captain Leicestershire in the 2020 after I'd done my master's degree was brilliant because um, I guess I was able to to repair some of that damage and, and play well under pressure in a few of those games. So, that definitely gave me a great head start in my second career in that sports psychology role because I knew what it felt like to take a penalty or to play in a massive crowd or to be in the FA Cup final or whatever it might be. So I think the players and the managers were able to relate to me and I was able to relate to them. Yeah. Do you, do you I mean, obviously some of the teams that you've been in and, and you've worked with, have you seen a lot of professionals that, you know, are at the probably at the, the very top of their their game. Um, but quite frankly, they're missing something. And it is that mindset um, that can get them to the next level. And have, have you helped identify that for, for them? Well, I, I, I would guess so. Um, I, I think the key thing about mindset is that it's a bit like confidence. That's sort of a core element of mindset, that when you're feeling confident, you stand up in front of a room, you, you tell your story, you sort of, magnetic in that aura that you've got and then when you've lost your confidence you sort of shrivel up you're timid your voice squeaks and you don't believe you're going to get a sale at all or score any runs or score any goals so I think the the best performers have learned these little techniques to build confidence and keep their confidence The, the key thing for me is we'll all have these peaks and troughs of confidence but when you learn about mindset you start to build some consistency. And that's what the very best performers have got in sport and business. 
they've got routines and habits that keep them at the top of the game for a long time. And, and that's really special. And how to overcome them pivots. So when you are on the down, how do you get yourself back up? 100%. I mean, for people that are listening, that's, that's key. Um, I, I, even myself and other entrepreneurs that I've spoke to, you know, don't, don't get me wrong. Every higher performer has them dips, but it's how you get back out of them dips um, and notice that you're actually in one of them dips, I suppose. A hundred percent. And and I think one of the differences I've seen and the research sort of backs this up is that if you imagine somebody taking a penalty uh, in a final or whatever, um, well, you know, you've missed the penalty and you you review that situation as if you're rubbish, you're just rubbish in life. It's fixed and it's going to last forever because you're a failure. That's yeah. That's the worst way to sort of code a failure. But the best way to, to look at it is at the other end of the spectrum, which is where somebody says, well, hang on a minute. It would, the failure came at 10 minutes past three on that Saturday afternoon. The failure happened when I was walking back to take the kick. The crowd shouted something. I got distracted and I forgot where I was focusing on the kick. So I didn't have a clear view in my mind. That's where the mistake was made. And I can practice it and I can improve it. So resilient people see a setback as a specific problem at a specific time and they can coach themselves out of it and do better next time and the people that aren't resilient just say i'm rubbish at sales or i'm rubbish at football and they take it very personally so you can definitely learn from that there's, but if account- you're gonna- there's accountability as well isn't it yeah. oh, like why why did that happen and then you work it back and you reflect on why it went wrong and how you're not going to let that happen again yeah, I mean, there's two ways to, you know, build confidence, I guess, in that respect after a setback. One is to blame it on everybody else and, and think you were right all along. So you never lose your confidence. Um, that's perhaps not the best way. But but the other way of doing it is, like you say, take real accountability, get quite forensic about it and say, I think the issue happened here when I was delivering my sales pitch. I mentioned this and I shouldn't have done. I, yeah. you know, and, 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 and I can learn from that and I can improve that. So. I think, you know, we all think that talent and natural ability is what it's all about. Now, you need some of that for sure. But I I think if there's one attribute of of all the elite performers I've interviewed for my work at Sporting Edge and podcast, I think it's the ability to keep learning and keep improving and keep going. You know, that tenacity and resilience is definitely the attribute that we all need. Great piece of advice for uh, business owners or or entrepreneurs there, you know, because a lot of what, what I've found and probably yourself interviewing and speaking to people is that, you know, a, a lot of people with natural talent um, can always be the biggest problems in, in some team because for a manager or somebody that is trying to motivate somebody, they've got that raw talent. They don't want to listen to anything else. They just want their talent to shine through. Um, and it can, can be tricky sometimes. Yeah, well, there's two elements to that. First of all, you know, I, I work with a lot of sports teams, you know, and, and the academies and things like that. And and I would basically say that your athleticism and your hand-eye coordination or your, you know, natural gift is your passport into this club. It's nothing more. Yeah. Everyone in this academy has got the ability to dribble and shoot and kick with both feet. And that that's just your way in. Yeah. What's really going to define your long-term success is your ability to a- adapt, be coachable and be resilient after Achilles tears, playing out of position, falling out with a coach and moving countries. You know, that's the stuff that really defines us. So, so that's the individual side. 
And then when we're talking about mavericks in a team culture, we've got to be very careful that we don't just look at the sort of 20% uplift. That, so we might have somebody who's a brilliant gift of the gab natural salesperson, but they don't really follow the process and they don't follow any due diligence or follow the ethics or whatever it might be in the business. Yeah, so when yeah. we look at their sales pipeline or their sales results, they're 20% up on everyone else. And it's massive. So everyone tends to think they're really natural, don't affect them. You know, we can't lose them out of the team. But what we don't look at is almost below the waterline of the iceberg, which is the impact that they're having on maybe 10 other people in that sales force where they are contaminating them and, you know, disrupting them and distracting them and getting them really angry because they're following the process and this person isn't. So they might be 20 percent up on sales, but they're actually compromising everyone else by six, eight, four, 10, 12 percent each. And that adds up to way more, you know, so we've got to be careful about how we you know, how much freedom we give those people with real natural talent and, and make sure they don't break down the culture that we're trying to develop in our businesses. Yeah. Talking about cultures, um, obviously, I, I think in any organisation, any, you know, any team, culture's a, a very big player. Um, what, you know, when when you're working with with teams, we're going to go on to the work that you've done with, with certain, you know, reputable big organisations. How do you overcome or how do you help instill culture um, in it? Because I think it is, you know, it is it is hard to to get culture instilled into a team. It's very time consuming and, you know, it's repetitive and it takes its time. But it'd be great to, to get your your take on that. Yeah, well, it, it's interesting because every business has got a culture. So if if, you know. If you walk into one of the massive banks, if you walk into a big property company, if you walk into an entrepreneurial startup that's just got into their first office, you can almost smell in the air what their culture is. You can smell it. You can sniff it. Is it tense? And, you know, is it sort of judgmental and scary and people are under massive pressure or is it creative and fun and bubbly and like a family that every business, every organization has a culture? I guess the question is, how can we move it to be more of a high performing culture? And there are definitely elements of that. I think having a really inspirational vision of this group of people that that are really different are going to combine their strengths to deliver something amazing. That's the first part. Why are we all here and what are we all going to do? Then it's about how are we going to do it? You know, what are the ethical practices? What are the financial lenses we're looking through? What are how do we make decisions? All those things are really important. And then can the individual see that their values and aims are reflected in being part of that team? Because, you know, if I'm, you know, really uh, strong on values and ethics, and then I can see that this business is just smashing, you know, smashing the environment, smashing society just to make short term profits, then I'm going to have a clash with that. So I guess, you know, a lot of it is just trying to be really clear about these different steps and making sure that everyone feels like, they can contribute to this bigger goal that they're part of. But you're absolutely spot on that that culture changes with success and failure. It, it's a the social chemistry of a, a room changes every day. If you win a multi-million pound deal, your culture's just changed. Yeah, yeah everyone's you know? buzzing. <laughs> yeah, you know, everyone's buzzing, but equally the next week everyone could be complacent. Yeah. yeah. If you have a massive, if you have a massive setback everyone's wounded and watching their back and hesitant, you know, so, so whether you're winning or losing, you've got to really be a detective, you know, and start looking for the clues in the culture and, and try and, uh, you know, 
take it up one percent each day you know that's that's the sort of challenge yeah so just coming on obviously you've got um an excellent business podcast out yourself um you know interviewing some some fantastic people inside the mind of champions um obviously you you've um done a q a with um sir alex ferguson um Tell us a little bit what you found about that and, you know, some of the people that you've, you've interviewed. Has any of them, you know, really shocked you with, you know, what, what they've actually achieved? Or is it all very similar when you're yeah. interviewing them kind of people? It's a really good question because I think I set out with Sporting Edge to try and capture these insights from elite performers. And it started with people in elite sports, so, as you say, Gareth Southgate, Eddie Jones, Dave Brailsford, these kind of people. And then the more we were working with different companies, they were sort of saying, okay, what about the military? So I do some uh, lectures at Sandhurst. So I interviewed a few of the military leaders yeah. and then met some execs at Google and Cirque du Soleil and professors from business school. And actually there seems to be this blueprint of the high performance environment. And each of them has got, what I love about it is they've got a different story or a different language but actually what they're talking about is exactly the same yeah so so whether you're an elite sports team whether you're a, a an entrepreneurial startup or whether you're a big corporate that's trying to innovate and change their business model these factors about are about first of all our mindset then about our leadership and then about our culture that we can create together so you know that there are incredibly ruthless and performance focused people like eddie jones but equally, the lady that runs the, the New York dance school or ballet, she is basically the Eddie Jones of ballet, if you yeah. like. And she speaks exactly the same. There's a, um, a leader at um, Sandhurst Military Academy that speaks exactly the same as an exec at Google. So I think there are these principles. And, and what we see from elite sport, of course, is the, the celebrity status. You know, So we know Sir Alex Ferguson won so many uh, trophies. We know Jose Marini's, uh, Mourinho's sort of charismatic style. Uh, Dave Brailsford's very scientific. Cycling is a much more sort of physics and maths kind of puzzle. You know, how many watts can you put out? What's your endurance? What's your weight? What's this incline? Um, all those kind of things. So there's different sports and different environments. And, and I've, I've found it absolutely fascinating, I have to say. Would you say, um, Jeremy, from interviewing them people and the work that you've done, um, that there's very, which very sim, you know, very similar people or similarities that are the same. You know, they look, they feel, they talk the same. Do you think that all starts from a young age, or do you think that that's something there's, you know, they've learned and that's why they are where they are? Um, I think it probably depends. I think some of the some of the elite performers clearly in a in a particular sport, uh, you know, a basketball star. Yeah. You know, you need to have parents that are over six foot, really. You know, you're not going to do it as a, as a five foot six tiddler. So, so there are some genetic elements that, yeah. are going to be, that are going to be there. But equally, there are thousands of kids that are over six foot, you know, at college. And, and you, you, you need that mindset. So I think there are definite physical attributes um, that, that you need and, and that sort of coordination that is natural in people. But what the, the interesting thing, I think, and this again relates to entrepreneurs, if, if you're an elite sports star and you're going to have a career for 10 years plus, it, it's not going to be 20 years, but it might be 10 or 15 at the top level, yeah. then, then you've probably got to be 10 different players. And the reason I say that is because there's so much analysis and transparency at the moment that 
everyone knows how you play. Everyone knows your strengths. Everyone knows your Achilles heel. So your opponents, who are also the best in the world, by the way, are trying to, you know, dig in at your weaknesses and limit your strengths. So by definition, they will strangle you if you stay the same. So you have to innovate and find a different way to be successful the next year once everyone's found you out. So that process of, yes, I'm good enough, but now I'm getting limited. I've got to go again. That definitely relates to that entrepreneurial mindset that I'm sure your listeners will relate to that whatever I was doing before the pandemic is different now. And whatever I'm doing now, as we end the pandemic, it's going to be different in a year's time. So that, that ability to keep, you know, shedding your skin and growing is, is really important. I think. I mean, many people look at successful business leaders and they, they don't realize the effort that it takes, you know, to keep performing, um, at such high levels in and out um, and, and obviously on the course of your work and the people that you've worked with, what's the most common things that they come up against that you need to address for them to be able to keep performing at that, that high level? Yeah, that, that's interesting because I think, you know, if somebody gets to the very top of the game and they're, they're all of a sudden they've become financially secure you know, maybe they've got a young family now, so that their sort of priorities are changing. Yeah, it's about constantly finding new ways to motivate them. For some people, it'll be statistics. You know, you're you're you know two trophies off the record, or you're two seconds yep. off a personal best. Whatever, it's it's that kind of thing. For others, this team's doing something special. You're a senior pro. You've got to motivate these youngsters and set the example. You're yep. slacking off in training a little bit. You know, there's always different elements. And I guess that I like that idea of being a detective, trying to pick up the clues of who's doing really well, who's sort of just flagging a little bit. And I think one of the key characteristics of the elite performers, again, is, you know, we all know we should be eating healthily and exercising to, to, to sort of lose weight and have a, have a decent physique or whatever. But we don't all do it. And, and especially through lockdown, that's been a real challenge. We all know that to grow our business, we need to have a good sales pipeline and get on the call on calls and, and close some deals. But how many people actually, you know, do that discipline yeah. every day, every day, every day. So, so I think one of the other characteristics that really sets these elite performers apart that do it for 10 years plus is AP McCoy was an interesting one from, from uh, horse racing. We asked him, how did you stay to be champion jockey 20 years in a row? And he said, I, I wake up every morning and jump out of bed thinking someone's going to beat me today. Yeah. You know, it's almost that it's, it's almost that fear of failure yeah. that they use as a positive fuel to motivate them to do the, the terribly hard things, getting up at five o'clock in the morning, scraping ice off the car, yeah. getting down to the horses, you know, getting out on the gallops or whatever. You know, who does that for 20 years in a row every day of their life? You know, a champion jockey. That's the yeah. truth. And so we can talk about talent as much as we want to, but there's a load of discipline and, and tenacity. Uh, the champions don't want to do it every day, but they do. And that's yeah, the difference. Yeah. I mean, just a, an, another question following on from what we've just said. Um, how important, you, you just you just touched on it, you know, diet, your diet, relaxing, um, but more importantly, having fun and, you know, recouping with, to keep that competitive edge. Um, but the people that you've worked with at a top level, CEOs, entrepreneurs, even high sportsmen, you know, is that important to, to really, I, I know that you have to be strict and, and, and disciplined, but 
you still have to, I know it's, it's, it's a juggling act, but still enjoy life as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think we notice this in elite sport much more because the exertion that we're putting in is physical. So your muscles get fatigued and you literally can't lift the weights anymore or you can't, you know, cycle anymore because your legs have gone after a hundred miles or whatever. So, so what we don't see in the entrepreneurial pursuit is how hard we work during the day. So as soon as a Tour de France athlete gets off their bike, they're into a dark bus that's starting to get them switching off into the sleep phase. They've got a sleeping bag with ice in to cool the legs down. So they're starting to get rid of the lactic acid and recover. Um, so they're already starting to think about tomorrow's race. Um, they see that as high as they work, as hard as they work, they need to recover just as deep. Yeah. What we, because it's physical, we see that quite tangibly. But what we don't see in the entrepreneurial space is how hard I've worked, how intellectually challenging that day was for me to do those spreadsheets, to write that business plan, to deal with those difficult clients or whatever. That's really taxing for me. So if I was an athlete, I'd be saying, I need to recover now. Re the best, I need to have the best night of recovery I've ever had because I've just had the hardest challenge that I've ever had in the day. But we don't do that. We tend to grab a couple of beers or a couple of glasses of wine. And, and that then knocks has a knock-on effect to make us sleep worse. You know, we then crave sugary foods and we're off on that cycle. So there's a couple of things. First of all, when we're under stress at work, we've got to make sure that we're recovering better than we've ever done, like an athlete would. Yeah. But your point about having time off from sport or having time off from work is another really important thing. This isn't just working rock solid and then switching off and sitting on the sofa. This is where we should be getting our brain into something else. So something like cycling or running, people get a lot of you know joy from that. Um, you know, I saw even um, Tom Daly was knitting. You know, at one of yeah. the Olympics. You know, so that ability to get your brain into Sudoku or you know watch read a great book or whatever. Your brain needs to be onto something, so it uses a different part of your brain, and that helps you to feel refreshed. But you know, equally, some of the best days of my life have been winning finals at Lords you know, massive booze up and party and celebration. Yeah. And you have to do that in business and sport as well. You know, Shane Warne, when I interviewed him for my podcast said, um, you know, losers have meetings and winners have parties. And, uh, you know, there's something <laughs> in that's quite, quite good. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very, um, I, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to stop having meetings, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, look, it's, it's, it's been great having you on. Um, there's some great stuff there. I mean, just a question that, you know, before we do finish up, a piece of advice that you could give to anybody, um, you know, who's going through pressure. Um, they feel like everything's stacked against them right now, whether that's, you know, I don't know, exams at school, you know, maybe locked, they've just come out of lockdown, they've been made redundant. What, whatever it is, you know, feeling a little bit low. Um, what would that one piece of advice that you could give to somebody be right now if they could come to you with any problem that they've got? Yeah, great. Well, uh, you know, I think our brain's built for safety, so it's not built for all this stress. So when things get too uncertain and too much pressure, we tend to, you know, get into trouble. So I always think about things in three rings. On the outside, we've got these things that I just can't control or influence. That's the government, that's the sort of uh, pandemic, you know, it's it's what the, my industry's doing, all that sort of interest rates, that kind of stuff. 
Then the middle band is the things that I can influence. So these are the family members or the people in my business or my customers. I, I can influence them and educate them. And my team, I can try and get them doing the right things, but I can't make them do it. And then in the very center, we've got the things that I can control. And, and this is where it really starts to be important. So we should be dialing down the stuff on the outside and acting like the CEO of our own performance company, even if people aren't CEO of their own business. You know, what can I do? People often worry about winning and losing. So I would say if winning is W-I-N, what's important now? Use that W-I-N as what's important now. What can I do now? What can I do in the next minute, the next hour, the next day to make it better? And your point earlier about taking control and being accountable is really important here. So if I've got that CEO's mindset, then I'll say, right, I've lost my job. The cavalry aren't coming. The industry isn't going to save me. I've got to get my CV up to date. I've got to start networking again. I've got to speak to some recruiters. You know, I've lost my well-being. Right. I've got to get my sleep, you know, back. I've got to get my get up early, do a bit of exercise, walk the dog, you know, organize my day. I've got to get hold of myself. And that's what I can do today to make it a gold medal day. So so I think and and that doesn't have to be selling your business for millions of pounds. It can be getting out of bed and having a shower and getting changed. You know, whatever you see as this is the first step for me to move on from where I am. And I understand people with mental ill health, have, you know, it's a real challenge to even get up in the morning. So we've got to set a low bar and almost build our confidence from there. And, and certainly that's, you know, in the podcast and the video library I've created, that's something that we've tried to equip people with. I think that's great. I mean, you know, it, from the from the top end to the bottom end, it's about little steps. It's about, you know, really biggest takeaway for me there is, you know, whatever situation you're in, you can still imply the same as somebody at the top of their game. And, you know, you're you're in, you're in not in the place where you want to be. You know, you just make them little differences each day, um, you know, and, and it can make things a hell of a lot better for yourself. Yeah, that's it. Imagine if, imagine if eight years ago we'd all put 10 quid a day in a bank account. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you'd be pretty happy now, wouldn't you? But the, the answer is we probably didn't. And, and that's why we're feeling like uh, we wish we had. But it's that compound effect, you know, that the more disciplined choices you make, the more it gives you the confidence then to get on the phone and speak to somebody, to get on the car and go meet somebody, to go and take that new job. But it all yeah. starts with those basic building blocks of discipline for yourself. Get out of bed, get showered, get changed. DCV, you know, it, it, it's amazing how that can transform once you take those first few steps. Yeah, no, thoroughly agree. Just just going back to what we spoke about at the start, um, because there might be, be some listeners that, that I don't want to miss anything, that they might just be thinking, obviously, you've worked alongside Crystal Palace, um, England England Rugby Club. You know, what's, when you, it's obviously an honour to, to, to work with them, but it's an honour means that, you know, you're, you're definitely doing something right in, in the sector that you're working in. Um, what's the most, when, when you go into these entities, what's the most common thing that you pick up on um, and what do you try and implement straight away? Well, that's, that's a very good question. Um, I guess the elite performers, the constant is pressure. Yeah. And, and actually where, when I was playing cricket, I retired in 2008, you know, before the whole explosion of social media, really. Um, when I played cricket, the hardest place was on the pitch. And then actually it was quite relaxing off the pitch because yeah. we weren't really judged. We could have a bit of fun and do what we wanted to do. 
Yeah, but now, <laughs> now because of all that judgment outside, they're being grilled and watched. You know, everyone's a everyone's a, a sort of a documentary maker with their phone. You know, twenty four seven. So the yeah. safest place for them is actually on the pitch. So I guess some of the things that I've been able to do with international sports stars is help them to reframe that pressure into something that they can do. You know, don't worry about what the papers are going to say tomorrow. Let's focus on your fitness, your strategy, your preparation, your execution. And, yep. and let's see if you think you were good enough. That's the first thing. Don't worry about yep. whether the papers give you a six out of 10 or an eight out of 10. What could you do? And, and again, that mindset of I'm in control of my life. I'm in control of my choices. If I deliver the very best I can do, then I've got no regrets. I have to say, I, I played professional cricket for 20 years. I got yeah. beaten many times. I have no issue with being uh, second best. I have a massive issue with letting myself down. Yeah. So your harshest critic is yourself, and you've got to set yourself goals and try and stay true to those. If somebody else outperforms you or another business comes along and, and wins a tender because they can do it faster and cheaper, well, that's fair enough. We'll learn and we'll regroup. But if we sabotage ourselves by not having the confidence or the focus or the we haven't practiced our sales pitch or whatever, then we deserve to fail. And they, that's where we have regrets. Yeah. I think it's all about preparation and, and being calm, really. Yeah. And just, just touching on that, I mean, social media, um, you, you just brought that up, I suppose, for, you know, high profile um, companies and, and people at the, the top of their game. You know, they are constantly in the spotlight. I suppose that now is a coach, something else that a coach, a manager, the owner um, has to take in account when, you know, working with people from from when you started. Have you had to implement that yourself in, in your coaching roles now? Um, well, I mean, there's a few different elements, actually. One, one thing that I did bring in, in cricket, because of the match-fixing stuff that happened a few years ago, all players have to put their phones in with a sort of security guy at the beginning of the match and then they get them back after the match. So they're not able to say, oh, we're going to do this in 10 minutes, yeah. put a bet on. Um, so, so one of the things that I did with the teams I worked with was when the players come back into the dressing room after the sort of final ball's been bowled, they're either elated because they've won or they're devastated because they've lost. And those five, six minutes in the dressing room are gold dust. You're either mourning the loss uh, and trying to apologise to people and sort of work out where you go from here, or you need to celebrate with probably some individual that scored a hat-trick or scored a hundred. And, yeah. and that's a special moment in everyone's life. So if you put a, a load of phones on the dressing room table, as soon as the players come in, what's the first thing they'll pick up? They'll pick up the phone, they'll go to the social media and they will connect out of the dressing room to see what everyone else outside the ground thinks of how they performed, how they performed. So they're missing that accountability of I messed up there. I shouldn't have done that. Sorry, coach. I won't do that next week. Let me work with you. What were you doing there? How can we do that, do that better next week? That's gold dust or Brilliant, mate. That century you just scored or that hat trick you just scored. What a legend. You've got a suit to the semi-final. Brilliant. Let's celebrate together, have a beer and, and crack on. You miss both of those experiences. If people are already looking out to their external network and yeah, trying yeah. to justify that it wasn't their fault or it was their fault because we won. So, so those those are little things that I think are really important. And, and again, coaches, if, if anyone's coaching teams that's listening, 
that kind of stuff, that kind of distraction, you've got to try and take out of the environment just for specific moments. And yeah. then once you've gone through that, give the phones back and they can get back in touch with the yeah, wives good. that are standing outside. Yeah. Or whatever. Good, good bit of advice for anyone that's listening at, at that level. But I suppose you, you just brought it up and I thought it'd be a good thing to, to find out. Well, look, um, Jeremy, pleasure having you on. What, what's next for yourself? Obviously, Sporting Edge is, is doing great things. We spoke about your platform um, previously. Um, listeners have, you know, listened to, to, to what you've got to, you know, what you've done and, and what you're talking about. If they want to find out more about yourself, how can they connect with you? Um, you know, far away, let them know how they can get in touch. And no, that, that's great. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm active on LinkedIn. So Jeremy Snape on LinkedIn is a good place. Um, SportingEdge.com has got access to our video library. So over the last 10 years, I've been interviewing, you know, brilliant professors and academics and sports coaches and, you know, amazing people on about 80 different topics that can help entrepreneurs to grow their business. So if you go to the membership area of Sporting Edge, then use the code, code EDGE21. You can actually get a free month's membership into that library. So that's you can watch all the videos of the famous sports coaches. And, and that's a great one. And then, as you mentioned, the. Uh, um, Apple Top 10 podcast, Inside the Mind of Champions, is the audio version of that, which is great for a dog walk or out on a run. So my, my passion is sharing the insights from the elite performers to, to help people be more confident and resilient and build their own careers. So, you know, any any chance we get to do that, the better. So I hope people have found inspiration today. And if I can help anyone, they can get in touch. Lovely. OK, well, Jeremy, thanks for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Um, this is the start of season three of many talks. Um, thanks, thanks for your time and your insight, Jeremy. Um, we, we we catch up soon. Good stuff. Good luck. Thanks. Cheers. So for now, what I want to do is thank you for listening. Subscribe. Leave a review. Look forward to speaking to you on the next podcast with some exciting guests coming our way. <laughs>